What's up, everybody? It's that time again. It's podcast time. I'm your host, Rob Goodwin, and welcome to episode, yes, it's 21 of the Ketogenic Bodybuilding Podcast. And this is kind of a special monumental episode because for those of you who are interested, um, we're simultaneously uploading this podcast, adding the video element and putting it on my YouTube channel. So if you're watching on YouTube, this will be the first of many requests and a, 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 a tradition on every episode. Please uh, push that subscribe button, hit the notification bell, like, comment, all that horse shit. Let's get those YouTube algorithms flowing and let's help push our cause and uh, get us out there into the YouTube world. So because when you do those things, it helps generate uh, more interest and it puts uh, our videos and the recommendations lists of other like-minded style uh, YouTube accounts and videos. So if you're listening on audio as you have been through all 20 episodes, then nothing will change. Continue on. Thank you for being here. But if you want to go check it out on video, then check out my YouTube channel. Um, it, uh, I'll put a link, uh, here in the, uh, podcast notes, uh, if you're listening on audio and, uh, obviously if you're watching me now, you're already here. So, uh, welcome to uh, a new era in the KGB podcast. And, um, I'm going to be a lot more active on YouTube. It won't just be, you know, the ketogenic bodybuilding podcast, anything that I want to, you know, talk about, or there'll be special episodes or uploads or whatever. If it's on my mind, I now have got a dedicated setup here to all I got to do is push one damn button and uh, all the magic happens and I can upload stuff. And you're going to get me, you know, fair warning people, you're going to get me in my full unrehearsed, unprepared glory. Um, you know, most of the time when I do this podcast, you know, I'm sitting in my freaking boxers, you know, hair all messed up, unshaved because I don't give a shit because nobody can see me. So I might actually kind of make an effort now on days that I do this to clean up a little bit. So uh, and some days I won't. So I can deal with it. OK, um, why you would want to see me do this podcast anyway is beyond me. But many of you out there requested it. You said, hey, why don't you put the podcast on YouTube and broadcast video? And I was like, Why? Well, I never really got a good reason, but people keep asking. So I decided, okay, I'll uh, see if I can make it work. And uh, I got the technology rolling and now it's working. So welcome to, as I said, a new era in the podcast. And, uh, you know, YouTube is a fantastic medium for what we do and getting information out. So I am uh, committed now to making this channel better than it's ever been. It's all, it's, it's been very sort of haphazard, you know, and occasional in the past, and uh, so now I want to try to make an effort to make this more of a, a regular thing for you people to enjoy. So if you do enjoy it, once again, hit that subscribe button, hit the notification bell, make a comment, whatever you want to do. But uh, it really helps what we're doing here and keeps pushing the mission uh, out there for people who are wanting to train hard and diet hard in more of a ancestral primal ketogenic style nutri nutrition protocol. So anyway onward. Um, today's episode is yet another Q&A episode, and I hope that's okay. But, you know, looking back at the downloads and uh, some of the statistics of the, the podcast, Q&A episodes always do very, very well, which tells me you kind of like them, I guess. So um, episode 20 was a Q&A. It was one of the uh, number one downloaded uh, podcasts that I've ever done. So, uh, you know, I threw out the questions on our ketogenic bodybuilding Facebook group, some questions on Instagram, and I got some direct messages from some people and compiled yet another list of your questions, your burning questions that you want answered. So that's what we're doing today. So I have several questions that I chose at random uh, off of those social media mediums that I'm going to try to answer for you today the best of my ability. So without further ado, let's get to that. So I've got my notes right here. And um, the first question is a good one because it's relevant and it's things, it's something that I think about quite often. And it is um, how will you, or will you change your training and diet when you decide to stop competitive bodybuilding? And I've spoken about this in the past, the difference between 
bodybuilding and competitive bodybuilding. I think that uh, anybody who is engaging in the process of trying to better themselves by training in the gym, whether it's a you know badass commercial gym or if it's your home gym or wherever that case may be, and you're making an effort with your nutrition choices to, you know, build the best possible body that you can, then you're a bodybuilder. You're literally building your body. And people will often message me, and we've talked about this, where they'll say, well, is, is this channel for me? Is, is what you do for me? Is your coaching for me? I'm not a bodybuilder. And then I always have to, you know, uh, echo the fact that of I currently work with online about 125 clients. And probably over half of those people are my full training, my gold program, training, nutrition, everything. And, and I'm now up to eight platinum programs, which is, you know, takes it to even another level of all of those 125 clients, the gold clients, the platinum clients, the nutrition reboots, everything that I do online, I would say maybe 1% actually are looking to compete or have competed in the past. So if you're asking if what I do is for you, it's 100% for you because the overwhelming majority of the clients that I've trained over the years, nearly 30 years now, have been just normal everyday people who are looking for that edge and trying to be better than they've ever been to reach their full genetic potential, you know, to be the freak in the room for, for once in their life after, you know, taking care of others and building a business or working a business or whatever the case may be. Now they've made a choice to do something for themselves and uh, take themselves to a level that they've never achieved before. And it's no secret that I believe in hard work, Herculean efforts and doing everything you possibly can to the hundredth degree to reach your absolute genetic potential. And uh, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult, but it's going to be worth it. And people that stay the course and put in that effort often see that. So it's a very rewarding experience for me. So back to the question, would I change anything with my own personal programming in terms of my training or my nutrition once I decide to stop doing competitive bodybuilding? And the answer is, you know, if, if I'm being honest, which I always am, you know, I'm honest to a fault. And even it's even if that honesty is detrimental, um, it's OK, because I'm not going to lie to you. I will change some things. Um, I will probably never change my intensity approach in the gym. You know, I'm always going to go as hard as I possibly can in the gym because I just enjoy that. Because why wouldn't you always strive to maintain and or even build additional muscle mass on your body because the more muscle you have the better your performance in all endeavors in life everything top to bottom any goal that you can think of is going to be better achieved and better attained if you have more lean muscle mass and less body fat so i enjoy training high intensity i've been training high intensity for you know, almost my entire career, nearly 30 years in the gym training high intensity. And that's never going to change because I enjoy it. And I can't find one good reason why I would want to change that and, uh, you know, take the risk of losing any of the lean muscle mass that I've built over the last, you know, 30 years. I fought my ass off to build as much as I can. And I'll be damned if I'm going to lose it. So that part of my training will not change. Diet, it will probably change to some degree. I'm still going to eat higher protein, moderate fat, lower carb. I'll still cycle my carbs around workouts. I'll probably still have a you know a refeed day, uh, some version of some carb cycling because it just works really well for me, and I've seen it work so well for others. I will probably lose some of the hardcore structure of a competition diet because my structure um, is you know is very repetitive. I eat every two to three hours. It's at the same times every day. And, you know, if you were to look at my, my fitness pal account, you know, when you first pull that up and you go under the foods that, uh, to enter in your meal for that time, you see all the recent foods that, you, that you've eaten. I literally, you know, in the later stages of a contest prep can build every meal off those top six or seven foods. It's very, very repetitive, but that works very, very well for me. Because that whole repetition you know, lends to the consistency aspect and 
keeps you from straying. So uh, I will probably be a little bit more dynamic in my food choices. I won't be beholden to such a rigid schedule. So I'll probably be more along the lines of a eat when I'm hungry and eat till I'm satisfied kind of a goal. But I've been doing this so long. I know if I'm operating in a deficit, I know if I'm operating in a surplus or if I'm just kind of maintaining where I'm at. It's, it's easy for me to assess because I've taken my body to such extreme levels, but that it's become very fine tuned at this point. And I tell people who are training for a competition for the first time, and I have many doing that right now, and many people who are training to get super lean for like a particular you know, personal goal or a photo shoot or something, the first time guys getting to that, you know, seven, six, five percent range is brutally hard. It's always brutally hard, always. But every time that you embark on a hard cut, it's a little easier each time than it was the time before because your body learns from that process. Once your body has been taken to a certain point, it's easier to get back to that point. And there's a question in here about muscle memory and the same thing sort of applies to that and we'll get to that. But having done something from a physiological level down to a cellular level in your body, your body learns from that and it sort of puts its guard down a little bit the next time that you endeavor to achieve that particular goal again. So it's very, you know, I'm at a point now where it's very intuitive, can be very intuitive for me. Now, when I'm competing, I still track, I'm still very meticulous. It has to be perfect. But um, I know I'll probably take the foot off the gas a little bit when I'm no longer a competitive bodybuilder and I'm just a lifestyle bodybuilder. Because my emphasis at that point will be 100% on my coaching business and my family. So, you know, it's about maintaining what I have, being fit, being healthy, uh, putting an even stronger emphasis probably on health and longevity. Um, As I said, not as horrifically rigid with my nutrition and probably never going to go to that insane level of uh, deficit uh, to get to a ridiculously low stage, you know, like national level competitor, you know, body fat percentage, which is very hard on the body. And it's, you know, it's tough. So anybody that's been there can echo that. So yeah, little things like that'll change. Um, I'll probably enjoy my life a little more. Because at that point, you know, 100% of my efforts will be wrapped around my coaching building this brand, doing the things that sometimes I didn't always have the time to do to, to further what I'm doing uh, down the road and, and make things bigger and brighter for the future of this company. So, so yeah, some changes will be made, but in terms of the broad strokes of what I do, uh, not that noticeably. No, I'll still put a huge emphasis on sleep. I'll still put a huge uh, emphasis on intensity. You know, I'll do all the freaking, you know, nutritional supplemental hacking that I can to, you know, have my hormone levels where they need to be to be as as vital and vibrant as I possibly can and keep pushing the boundaries the older that I get into my life. So, yeah, not a lot, but some. I hope that answers the question, kind of. Anyway, next question. Uh, Chris, favorite exercise for each body part do you train forearms directly? Um, it is impossible for me to pick a favorite exercise per body part. You know what I can do though? I, I can like for legs. Um, many years ago, uh, I trained religiously on a belt squat and got some insane growth from that belt squat and just freaking killed myself on that belt squat and had some miserable leg days on that belt squat. And then, you know, I no longer had access to one and and time passed. I always said I was going to get one and I never pulled the trigger on it. And recently I've got a new belt squat in my gym and uh, I'm like a little kid on freaking Christmas on that thing because now as an older athlete, um, whatever, uh, to be able to squat heavy again. And I mean, you know, in the past couple of years for me to get under a barbell, a free weight squat, free weight back squat, there would be a compromise there as to how much weight I would push or could push because of some weakness in my lower back. 
It didn't matter if I trained my lower back. It didn't matter how hard I trained core or all those things. That you, people are sitting out there saying, well, if you'd have done this, you go, no, no. Um, I've had some limitations in my lower back over time. And I also will admit that I don't have the greatest shoulder mobility in the world too. I've got some fairly big delts just genetically, and it's not always super comfortable, you know, to put 400 pounds on a bar and, uh, support that structure with my lower back and that shoulder mobility and all that kind of stuff. So the great thing about a belt squat is, is I can squat heavy again with zero concern about the lower back and the shoulders and all these things. So I can kind of take my mind out of it and I can put that thing, you know, that, that harness on and I can add as much weight as I feel like attempting, even if it's a stupid attempt, even if it's something I probably shouldn't be doing, even if it seems irresponsible, I know I don't have to worry about injury because I can still squat below parallel as heavy as I can to the point of failure where I can't get that last rep up and I literally collapse on my ass, you know, into a heap on the floor and, you know, struggle to get out of that thing like a monkey dry humping a football, okay? But, with, but it's without fear. And there's this great freedom of being able to lift heavy, knowing that you're not compromising or you're not worried about some other element of your you know, your body that may give way or put you in a detrimental position to injure yourself. So you got to be aware of these things, you know, us, us guys and women, maybe over 40. And, uh, you know, so that's why I love the belt squat. So for legs with the belt squat is my current favorite, um, for back, um, any sort of a heavy rowing movement right now at this time, I would say it's chest supported barbell row. It's a great old school movement. What's great about the chest supported barbell row is you can't cheat that shit up. You can't, you can't cheat it up. You know, it's a pure movement. You, you can't use any body momentum. You can't jerk the weight up. You're either getting the rep or you're not getting the rep and you may die halfway and you may be fucking dying and you know, whatever. And it's, it's still a great repetition because of the effort that you're putting into that, but you're not going to cheat that shit up. It's just not going to happen. So it's such a pure, heavy freaking movement. And I absolutely love it. And, um, Again, a lot of gyms don't have a chest-supported barbell machine or a bench. Um, I picked up one at Titan Fitness. It was very affordable, and uh, it's now my favorite piece of equipment to do back on. So, um, and I also love, in terms of back, I like doing pre-exhaust supersets. You know, and I get this from Dorian Yates and Mike Menser, Arthur Jones, these guys, where you'll do a pre-exhaust movement like a pullover. So right now, my current favorite is a cable pullover to pre-exhaust the lats and then immediately superset that with, say, a reverse grip uh, cable pull down or, or any version of sort of a pull down neutral grip pull down or any type of pull down heavy immediately following the pre-exhaust um cable pullover and currently the cable pullover is my favorite if i had a 1970s nautilus chain driven pullover that's the greatest of all time but good luck finding one of those damn things if your gym has one and you're not using it then you're an idiot so um those deals Uh, all the other body parts you know i don't think i enjoy one movement over, over the other um you know just anything that lends to some high intensity um but for sure legs and back, those would be the ones that, uh, and that's probably why I love leg day and I love back day. Back day is my favorite day. Leg day now, especially with the, you know, the addition of the belt squad is my new, it's probably my second favorite day because I, you know, you get that fear of leg day, but now I know I can have that fear of leg day without the fear of injury. So I really, I'm enjoying leg day again. So thankful for that. So not really an answer to the question. I, I, I really can't pick a favorite, you know, but you know, that's like, you know, what's your favorite cookie? You can't really pick a favorite cookie, you know? I mean, who, who can do that? I, I can't do that. So anyway, next question, thoughts on failure training or training to failure, full body five days a week or a PPL split, meaning push, pull legs split. Here's the deal, Kyle. You can do a five-day pro split, which is what I prefer, because I know I can go balls out fucking heavy as hell and give it everything I got. I'm going to have adequate time to recover from that load and that effort. 
before I hit that body part again with no risk of short-circuiting the growth process because I was ended up training a body part that wasn't fully overcompensated. But whatever. My point is, is it's the failure part of your question that is what's paramount here. I don't give a shit what study you throw at me. And there's a lot of high top level coaches out there and bodybuilders who will agree with me and shout it from the rooftops. If you're not taking your sets to failure, you're leaving something on the table. You will never convince me otherwise. I've trained too many freaking people at too high of a level, including myself and others. And I know for a fact that if you're not growing, it's because your intensity sucks and you're not pushing things to real failure. And I remember back in the 90s when I thought I knew what failure was, when I was reading about it, and I was close because I was a brain dead idiot back then that would follow any fucking instructions if I thought it was going to make me stronger and bigger at that time. And I thought I really knew what failure was and I was close, but until I went and traveled and trained with John Perillo in his gym, until I went and did a session after several phone consultations with the late, great Mike Menser, I thought I knew what failure and intensity was, but then I finally truly experienced it. And if you've, you may think that you trained to failure, you may think that your intensity is through the roof, but... I've had this happen time and time again, where somebody would come up to me and ask why they're not growing. And I would talk about intensity and we'd be talking about a certain body part or body group. And I'd say, well, hey, let's, let's go through a set of something. And we would, and you know, he'd pump out 12 reps of something and think he was giving it his all. And I just, uh, stood there and shook my head and the thought of berries and cream just kept popping up in my head. Um, because most people don't understand what real agonizing true failure is. And until you understand that and until you learn that and until you you know walk down that path and you walk through fucking fire and understand what that is, then you're leaving a lot of growth on the table because the body does not want to change. It does not want to respond. It does not want to super compensate from massive trauma is trying to prevent you from engaging in massive trauma. What I want you to do is to engage in massive trauma. So, you know, if you're not doing super high intensity, uh, supersets and pre-exhaustion sets and drop sets, you're not doing century sets and cluster sets and rest pause sets and taking something to the point where if I put a shotgun barrel in your mouth, and said, do two more reps or I'm blowing the back of your skull onto the wall behind you and you still couldn't get those two reps, you're almost there, okay? And yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's difficult to do that at every workout and I get it. Sometimes you're not gonna be quite as intense as you were before, but if you understand that mentality and that process and you're giving it everything you have to that level and that's the goal, then you're going to start to see those gains increase. And there are other factors involved, and that's something we can talk about on another podcast. But um, for the most part, training to failure, you can't lose by doing that, incorporating that. And Mike Menser and all of his, you know, uh, in all of his unusual brilliance, um, explained at one time, he explained it to me, and this was kind of a, common response that he had, he would cite certain studies or the opinion of other exercise physiologists or whatever. And he would say, you know, we've got this one guy saying you only need to get to 80%. We've got this other study saying you get to 86%. We've got a study that says you get to 90% of your max and you'll grow. One may say 70 and you don't need to go to failure. Well, Mike was brilliant in his rational, logical answer. And he said, you know what? If I take it to 100% failure, I've hit his 70, his 80, his 85, his 90, and I've covered my bases and I've taken it to the point of 100% concentric momentary muscular failure. I've covered all my bases and I'm now guaranteed, regardless of whose methodology you, you want to follow, to grow. And he's absolutely right. You can't lose by training to failure. And I would also argue 
this is another discussion, that training high intensity, low volume is safer than super high volume workouts as well. Plus the fact that you cannot put super, super high intensity into long duration workouts. You just won't last. And I've seen it time and time again. I can put an unreal amount of effort into a 40 minute workout and then collapse and fucking die and lay there in the fetal position for the next hour and a half. And I know that I'm going to grow. You know, they talk about, you know, endorphin rush and, uh, you know, getting that exercise high by training intensely. Well, I must be getting a hold of some bad shit because whenever I train to full intensity, my ass is shot for the rest of the damn day. I need a fucking nap and a blanket, okay? Because to me, if you're not feeling it like that and if you're not sore most of the time, you're probably doing it wrong. And nobody wants to hear that, but somebody is listening to this and saying, yeah, because there are others out there who want to hear that because this is about being the freak. You're not going to attain a level that makes you leaner and more ripped and more muscular than the common status quo, unless you're doing something completely Herculean, completely you know, above and beyond what 99.9% of the population is doing. If it were that easy, everybody would look jacked and ripped. But instead, obesity rates are climbing more every, every year. And every time I look around, you know, the, the gyms and the streets and the shopping centers of America, people are just getting lazier and fatter. And it's just, it's just a sad state of affairs. So the remedy to that is not easy. And in this culture, nobody wants to hear about super freaking hard work and sacrifice. But if you want to achieve something, if you want to attain something, that's what you're going to have to put yourself through. Okay. So Kyle trained to fucking failure. All right. Next. Good questions. Bill wants to know, do you only work with clients on a keto diet or can you work with any diet style? Great question, because I get it a lot. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, as much as I talk about, you know, keto zealots out there and nutrition zealots in general, sometimes I get lumped into that category too. Uh, and it's really very unfair. Honestly, people, if you come to me because you trust my experience uh, as a trainer and a coach to get you in your peak level of human potential. I will work with ever, you know, at, at least make an attempt to work with any dial diet ideology that you want to try. If you come to me and you're a 30 year old guy and you're following a more traditional, you know, bodybuilding diet, high protein, higher carbohydrate, lower fat. And if that's working for you up to this point and you feel great on that and you're not, you know, achieving any, um, you know, inflammatory side effects or metabolic side effects or, you know, if everything seems to be humming right along and that's what you enjoy and that's the style of diet that you think is going to get you to your goal, I'll absolutely work with that. There are people, believe it or not, who I have taken off of a more ketogenic style approach who were competitors and switched them over to some more carbohydrates. It's just worked better for their bodies. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that there's one size that fits all. And there are coaches out there who are making a damn good, decent living lying to you, trying to tell you that one size does fit all. And those guys are assholes. Okay. One size does not fit all. Now there are broad strokes that you can bring to the table to justify a lot of different diet methodologies. You can make a very strong argument for many, except veganisms. Vegans can go fuck off. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, if somebody could come to me and work, want to work with more of a paleo style, which I think is great, you know, if, if that works for you, then fine. Um, I just happened to make a name for myself because I was able to uh, achieve some pretty insane physiques and some pretty insane before and afters, including myself, 
by only using carbohydrates around workouts and on the very structured refeeds and otherwise sticking more to an ancestral primal style of eating where we subsist on animal protein and, and healthy fats uh, as a primary fuel source and use carbohydrates specific, specifically around the higher intensity efforts where that carbohydrate may be a wise use of energy and helps spare protein to do its job to build muscle. But to, to answer the question, I can work with any diet style. So if you want to come to the table and work with me, you know, right out of the gate, say, hey, I've tried the keto thing. I've tried the uh, ancestral thing, the low carb thing. It's just not my style. I like to have a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that. I would say, great. So I will set some initial macros around that ideology that make the most sense for you wanting to put on as much muscle as possible. And then as long as we bring you down to the proper caloric deficit and get your nutrient partitioning correct to keep body fat coming off and preserving lean tissue as we get into a cut phase, yeah, it, it's okay if we change the methodology. So yes, I work with all types, not just people who want to work on more of an ancestral primal ketogenic approach. So hope that makes sense. Um, Erica wants to know when in a competition prep, can you still flexible diet or should you stick with the same meals over and over again? I don't know exactly what she means by the same meal singular over and over again, because I certainly don't eat the, well, I could, <laughs> I could, there, there have been times where I thought to myself, now, if I just eat chicken breast and asparagus every three hours, I'm going to be fucking shredded. And it sounds like a great plan on paper because you think I don't have to think about it, that repetition, but da, 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 and I'll get ripped, I'll get shredded. You know, then a day and a half into that bullshit, you're going to kill somebody. So you got to change it up a little bit. But yeah, to answer the question, um, you know, as long as you're in a caloric deficit, if the goal here is cutting, and as long as your protein is high, then you'll probably be just fine. Now, that's when it becomes the coach's job to evaluate pictures and look at trends in your diet and say, Things aren't moving quite along as we like or as quickly as we like. So let's make an adjustment here and see how your body reacts to that. Because extreme competition style uh, results, there's, there's no, you know, clear cut A or B. You know, it takes experimentation. We're all different. You know, I've had people where I'm trying to get them just shredded, and even though I have them in a caloric deficit, their body responds better with a particular nutrient partitioning at the same calories A than it did with the same calories B with a different nutrient partitioning. Does that make sense? So you still have to sort of turn the dials and the knobs. For most people, as long as you're in a deficit and your protein intake is your dominant source of intake, you're going to be just fine. You're going to get ripped. You're going to get shredded. And then we uh, you know, manipulate uh, some, some carbohydrate around your workouts, as, as stated, and bring in just enough uh, healthy fats for hormonal response and uh, all the good things that healthy fats do for the body. So... Yeah, I mean, you can definitely get a little, you can stay fairly dynamic, but what I found is um, staying more repetitive to the same, you know, five or six meal types on a daily basis seems to work much better in terms of not triggering uh, binges or overeating and, you know, you know exactly where you land every day. Uh, macronutrient wise with your tracking, it's easier to, it, when you get to that point where you're not thinking clearly and it's becoming extremely difficult, um, you like to have that simple repetition, do A, B, C, D, or E at this time every day. And that seems to work the best. It's not exciting. It's not fun. It's boring as hell, but you're doing this for a goal. You know, you're, you're not a food critic. This isn't a culinary tour. This is about results. This is about success. So you make it as simple as you possibly can to get the nutrients in that you need to keep dropping that body fat and preserving lean muscle. So hopefully that makes sense. Okay. Natalie, who went through some shit recently, 
as she alludes to here, exercises or tricks beyond holding onto dumbbells and barbells to help improve grip, grip strength. I found out yesterday mine absolutely sucks. Worse than I thought when I was trying to turn the valve off of the busted hot water heater. Yeah, she went through some shit down there uh, in Louisiana, and, uh, but I think all is well now. Here's the deal. Unless you're a competitive power lifter where you are required to lift heavy load with no assistance by straps or things of that nature, get some straps. You know, your back strength and your arm strength will always outweigh your grip strength unless you're some genetic super freak or you just have some strange twisted obsession with incredible grip strength. Um, I use straps when I do heavy back work. Um, and I'm not ashamed of that because I'm trying to build a bigger, stronger back. I'm trying to add muscularity to my lats. I'm not trying to have a grip like a pair of channel locks. Okay. So, uh, I use a particular, uh, wrap. It's made by the company chic and it velcros around the wrist and you have a, a strap that comes off with a little dowel on the end of the strap. So you just throw that around the bar reach around, grab that dowel. It kind of locks that strap into the bar and into the grip itself. And then you can, you know, pull considerably greater loads without the risk of your grip strength, you know, being compromised and you letting go or not being able to, able to complete as many reps as you would like because your grip failed. So lose the ego in terms of grip strength, get yourself some straps, wrap those straps around the bar and uh, lift your ass off. So Definitely get some straps, Natalie. Okay, next question. Keith, muscle memory. Told you we'd talk about that. Retaining mass at 59 years old. Hell yeah, 50s club. 10-week layoff due to surgery, planning for my return to the iron in December. Listen, muscle memory is a amazing, amazing thing. And I've experienced it firsthand. If you know anything about my backstory, I spent, you know, a decade training super heavy, living the total hardcore bodybuilding lifestyle. You know, my heroes were Dorian Yates and, you know, all the, the big, you know, crazy high intensity pros of the, of the nineties. And, you know, guys like Menser and Jones and, you know, the stories. Well, I, you know, because I was a coach and because I was a trainer and because I'm always curious, I took some time off from that and engaged in some endurance activity, endurance sports. Uh, long story short, I got into some cycling and even a little bit of running for a while. Uh, I absolutely love the cycling part, though, and I still to this day miss cycling, and, and maybe one day we'll go back to doing some cycling, not at the level that I did years ago, but uh, I really, really enjoyed that. And when I got into cycling, obviously, because I was doing you know almost all endurance sports and my strength training switched from super heavy you know, split workouts to more of just more like circuit training just to maintain as much mass as I could. So I would still have some power in my endurance training and still look good, not look like dog shit. Um, you know, I, uh, I lost a considerable amount of weight. You know, I was a 230 pound bodybuilder guy. And when I got into heavy cycling after about a year of doing all the cycling, I got down to, you know, under 190 pounds, still big for a cyclist but uh, considerably smaller for myself. And, um, you know, fast forward, I started training heavy again in roughly 2013 and then decided to compete um, and get back to that lifestyle in 2014. It did not take me long going back to heavy, high intensity, super high intensity training five days a week with the pro split you know, jacking my calories back up, putting that emphasis on high protein. You know, I immediately did, you know, calculated macros. I was taking in 1.5 grams of protein per pound of body weight. I was training my ass off, putting a huge focus on recovery and sleep and, you know, nailing my supplementation and, and doing all the things that I knew to do 
And it didn't take long until I was back to that, to, to nearly in, in 2014, I got nearly back to that 230 pounds again, and then uh, cut that down to 212 uh, for my first competition at 40 years old. And then the following year was able to get back to 230 body weight. And, you know, I think the heaviest I've ever been uh, off season is around 236. And that's still not being a big fat ass. So, you know, I don't, I'm not into dirty bulks, but uh, I, I attribute so much of that to the foundation that I built back in the nineties, training super heavy, high intense, taking in a ton of calories, understanding how to get nutrients in my body, staying very high protein, a huge emphasis on rest, huge emphasis on not putting shit in my body, huge emphasis on not being a fucking drunk every weekend and all these things. And my, my body, I think genetically, I don't think I know genetically I'm a weightlifter genetically I'm a bodybuilder because I put on muscle very quickly. I'm a hyper responder and it didn't matter how much I pedaled that fucking bicycle. I was still getting, you know, blown past by these little rolling fucking toothpick guys who genetically had these endurance genetics and I just don't have them. So even though I got decent at cycling and even a little bit of running, um, it paled in comparison to what I was able to achieve when I really zeroed in on uh, eating right and getting into the gym and training really, really hard. So muscle memory is definitely a thing. And you're talking about 10 months, excuse me, 10 week layoff, 10 week layoff. And I've seen your pictures. It's nothing. Don't worry about it. You'll be back in no time. Just keep that intensity high. Keep those nutrients coming in high protein. You know, the drill you'll be back in no time. I have absolutely no doubt. And if I thought or had any doubt, I would definitely tell you. So, all right. Again, how are we doing on time? Oh, we're not doing bad at all. It's only 40 minutes. So I want to keep, try to keep these under an hour if I can because people get bored as shit. I would, I would get very bored looking at me talk about this shit for over an hour. I might be able to get through an hour if I break it up in my car, you know, have it kind of gone on in the background, you know, anyway. All right, Lucas, how do you get past a weight loss plateau when you are in a deep cut? Um, I eat true story. Um, when I am in a deep cut now, Everybody heard my, you know, woe is me fucking story about nationals. I took myself way too deep, way too deep, way down in the fucking hole, deep into the cave and went so damn far in terms of caloric restriction and carbohydrate underconsumption, not enough healthy fat. I took myself to a point of depletion that I could not bring myself back from. You know, when I got, you know, when you're at 215 pounds and you're taking in 1200 calories and you can't drop a fucking pound, you know, I know ultimately I probably would, um, but there is more to it, you know, in those cases, in those areas of competition prep where it's not just about calories. There is a point when you are just hammering yourself, your metabolism, your body so fucking hard that it will literally say, we're done. We're done and shut the hell down. Now, when I was getting ready for my Charlotte competition that I did so well at, it was the, the leanest I've ever been, the most conditioned I've ever been. And I felt I'd brought myself to a point where if I'd have just stayed the fucking course, I'd have cruised into nationals with a top three finish, if not better. But instead, I went too deep and I couldn't bail myself out. And had I stuck to my original plan and had that occasional refeed, had those occasional days where I took in a little bit more calories, then uh, my body would have responded to that. I can't tell you how many times I've got a client in a deep cut. And I can just tell by some of the feedback I'm getting that this isn't just about I'm hungry. This is about things are just like falling off the edge. And I'll say something to the effect of, hey, listen, tonight... Tonight, I want you to have you know, a couple of rice cakes with some honey and some almond butter and some salt and down those bitches right before you go to bed. And they'll something, say something to the effect of, what are you fucking kidding me? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm three weeks out. Why are you? Trust me, you need a boost. You need a bump. Eat it. And then they'll always get up the next day and say, hey, I feel better. Things are rolling again. I look leaner. I look harder. 
you know, and it always works. So I would say when you feel like you're at a point, now if, if you're three days out, suck it up, buttercup, there's a plan in place and you're going to be carving up soon enough for your competition. But if you're a few weeks out and you got that point where you feel like things are just shutting down and nothing's happening anymore, bump those calories up one day, refeed a little bit, shake things up, flick the button on the thermostat a little bit, heat things up and things will get rocking again in no time. Uh, it never fails. It always works. And I wish I'd have took my own freaking advice um, a week out before nationals. And I think things would have been considerably different for me. So um, Danny wants to know, uh, he says, I'm curious if there is a way to know if there is a cap on lean muscle. Is that the full question? Uh, lean muscle. If, if there's a cap on lean muscle mass that I can put on naturally at different ages, thank you. Nobody knows your genetic limit for muscularity. Nobody does. Uh, you may discover it by going through the process many, many times as you reach more muscle maturity. I think it's easier to know once you get up into your 30s, usually about 33 to 35 and is when we start to reach that cap for your absolute, um, you know, prime of your muscle building life. And, uh, but it's impossible to say how much. Now, me personally, leaner, fatter, whatever, it seems that about all I'm able to do naturally is roughly about 230 pounds. No matter how much more food I eat, no matter how much harder I train, no matter, you know, what I do, I usually tap out right around 230 pounds. And I just think that's what's encoded in my fucking DNA. I, I'm convinced of that. And I've worked with others that have done the same thing. I've taken somebody through two or three go arounds of a goal, you know, prep or a contest prep where no matter what we do, we can only seem to reach a certain particular threshold of lean gains. And that's okay because you know, the point is, is I've said this a million times. I don't give a shit unless you're a prof you're trying to be an IFBB pro. Okay. And let's be honest. If you're trying to be an IFBB pro, you're going to be sauced to the damn gills. And that's how you get past those plateaus at that level. But if you're just normal folk trying to be their absolute freaking genetic best and be the freak in the room around normal people, then uh, there's going to be a genetic cap to that. But the cool thing is, if you have the ambition, the drive, and the desire to really go deep into that diet and shred that shit out, I don't care who you are. If you put on as much muscularity as you can, as you possibly can, and shredded that down to 7 6% body fat, you're going to look absolutely freaking amazing. And you're going to make jaws drop when you peel off your t-shirt at the pool. Okay. Now that's different than the guy who doesn't train hard, who hasn't reached his, you know, absolute capacity for putting on muscle and gets shredded and peels his shirt off. He still looks like a 12 year old boy and it's unimpressive. He's just a shredded skinny guy. And who gives a shit about that? But if you are working your ass off in the gym and let's say genetically, you're roughly 12% body fat and you can get to 227 pounds. And then no matter what you do, you can't get to 228, no matter how many extra calories, how much freaking steak and eggs and how much iron you push in the gym. Well, that 227 pounds that you've built through hard fucking work, once you whittle that down to 6% body fat, you are going to look amazing. So don't worry so much about what your cap is in terms of muscularity build the most that you possibly can be sure of it in your heart of hearts and souls of soul and know that you've done everything you can and then embark on that hard cut preserving as much as you possibly can get down to that five or six percent and then you know enjoy the fruits of that labor because it's going to be very impressive and you're going to turn lots of heads and you're going to be very proud of the hard work that you put in so don't worry so much about the peak as long as you're giving it everything you got worry about getting to that point and then revealing it the best that you possibly can. Don wants to know the effects of zero calorie, zero sugar sodas on muscles. There aren't any. Provided you're taking in enough water, provided you're taking in enough protein, provided you're training to the level that I've discussed a couple of times already on this podcast, Sodas contain zero calories. 
what's it going to do? Um, there have been tons of studies on the effects of uh, diet sodas and diet drinks and diet foods. And so far, there's been nothing so compelling that would freak me out. Now, to that end, yes, if you're living your entire life on fucking aspartame and Splenda, that probably at the end of the day is not going to be your best option. So yeah, I will occasionally have a Coke Zero. I will occasionally have something that's been you know slightly artificially sweetened. Hell, the whey protein shake that I drink every day has a little bit of freaking sucralose in it. So fucking what? It's a tiny amount. But I know that if I'm still getting a good gallon of good, clean water in a day, which I do, and I know that my micronutrients are on point, my macronutrients are on point, I'm killing myself in the gym, by all means, you know, drink your monster energy drink if you like, or have your diet Coke or, you know, whatever. Just don't subsist on it all the time. It's a treat. It's supplemental to your hardcore nutrition protocol, your hardcore training protocol, your hardcore recovery protocol, and your 100% laser focus on not putting real garbage in your body, like super high palatable foods and garbage foods and processed foods and alcohol and all these things. So as long as you're sticking to the, you know, the mainstays, lift your ass off, diet hard, high protein, lots of recovery, an occasional bit of uh, diet soda is not going to be a big deal. I drink them too. I'm not worried about it. And I certainly am convinced it had zero effect on my level of muscularity as I go through the process. So hope that helps. Uh, let's see. Emmy. How long should you be in a caloric deficit when trying to lose or cut? Is there a maintenance period in between that is mandatory? Um, there's no mandatory maintenance period. Now, I don't like, you can be in a slight caloric deficit for a very long time. A very long time. Um, when I coach people, um, especially if I have the ability to be with them for a while, if I know that there's an event or a competition date, many know that I like to get to a point of 24 weeks out, six months, and then start making calculated changes at that point. And then, you know, roughly around 16 weeks, we'll adjust a little more, maybe drop things down a little further. And then when we get to 12 weeks, that's when we put the hammer down and that's when we go deep. That's when we go super hard. The deficit goes harder. Uh, and that's when the shit hits the fan. Uh, if you're just in a two, 300 calorie deficit, you can sustain that a very, very long time. Um, but don't be afraid to have those hypercaloric refeeds. Don't be afraid to have uh, those periods where you take a diet break for, you know, a few weeks or a month or, or whatever. Uh, that's fine. Obviously, if there's a goal ahead of you, you want to stay as strict as you can to that goal. And then when somebody reaches that goal, I will then pull them out of a cut, slowly start to titrate calories and macronutrients back up to more of a maintenance level. And then we evaluate what the goal is beyond that. And do we want to take it into a surplus? Do we want to, to do whatever? And truth be told, if you go through a 12 week hard cut, and we get you to your goal date and you take those photographs or you go to that high school reunion or you step on stage and do that competition. I know your ass is going to be neck deep in a buffet a few hours after that anyway. So I don't really worry about you recomping a little bit and getting those calories back in your system. Uh, and if you're one of these overly obsessed people that, you know, don't you know, start to put nutrients back in your body. Don't be that person. You're just going to end up doing a lot more metabolic damage to your body than good. So you definitely want to pull yourself out of it. So again, there's no hard and fast science to how long you should be. Um, but I think uh, if you're not pursuing a particular goal or a date on the calendar, I would definitely say after every good 12 weeks or so, uh, then come out of that, take a diet break, Add some calories, adjust your macronutrients a little bit, get some more good nutrition in your body, you know, recomp a little bit. And the other thing about that is too, and we're going to talk about this in another episode, is one of the best times to put on muscle 
is coming out of a hard cut, meaning you've you've cut super hard. Uh, your competition date or your goal date or whatever your calendar date comes mission accomplished, you know, those weeks and early months after you bring your calories back up to maintenance or even a, a mild surplus, and then you're back in the heart again, uh, back hard in the gym again, you're going to see a lot of really cool recomp happening at that time. Your body just wants to put the shit back together. And as long as you're not eating fucking, you know, mini Snickers, you know, by the handful and being completely irresponsible and you get ba- your ass back into the gym after a couple of days off of, you know, much deserved rest, you have a great opportunity to really pack on some uh, some nice new lean muscle tissue and recomp maybe what you flattened out during that cut. So um, I know that's not a really specific answer to the question, but definitely don't want to live in a deficit. I've seen people that do these protein sparing modified fasts for like years and wonder why they're all fucked up. Uh, that's not a way to live your life. You know, those types of super low calorie, you know, low nutrient density sort of, you know, dietary protocols are to achieve a certain goal in a short term is sort of the final phase uh, of what you've been working toward. Uh, But it's not something that you want to do for for months and months at a time, because then it just becomes detrimental to your progress. And literally, literally things can go south and shut down on you at that time. So. Um, let's see, I'm going to probably skip a couple here. Okay. Sean wants to know, is there a good source or pro tips on methods to increase intensity without a spotter? For example, achieving forced reps, uh, or beyond failure sets without assistance from an outside source. So if you don't have a spotter, like if you're working in a home gym, or, you know, you're just at a gym and you never really have the ability to get any help from a spotter or somebody to help you when you're getting to those four reps or helping you with a negative so you don't kill yourself uh, or maybe helping you with a long rest pause set or whatever. Or then what do you do? You know what? That's when I think it's time to engage in some you know, cluster sets, rest, pause, I think are definitely the two best options to increase intensity. Even if you may have to shut down the set before 100% failure. Does that make sense? So in other words, you know, like if I was doing a chest press and I wanted to take it to the most insane level that I could, but I knew I didn't have a spotter. So, you know, I don't want to get to the point where, you know, the bar could kill me. Now on a Smith machine, the reason I mentioned that is because you can lock it in place. Uh, but as Sean mentioned, he doesn't have somebody there to help force rep and do those high intensity techniques necessarily to take you to a level of super compensation that is going to give you the best results in the gym for putting on muscle. So if the K, if that were the case for me, I would use something like a Smith machine or a hammer strength machine or some sort of plate loaded equipment or whatever. And, uh, I would get, uh, like, let's, let's say, you know, a good example is a century set, a hundred reps. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to truly, honestly select a weight that gets me through that I can maybe do 20 to 25 reps. So I'm going to choose a weight that I, I can only get 20 to 25 good reps with on the Smith machine. So I select that way to put the weight on. I start going. And then, of course, I'm failing around 20, 25 reps. Let's say I get to 23 reps and I'd better rack this damn thing or it's going to, you know, crush me. So I lock it in. I count to 10, one, two, three, and so on. I unrack it. I get as many more as I possibly can keeping track of my count. Okay. So let's say I get from 23, I now get to, to, 41, rack it again, take 10 breaths. And then I get from 41 to 67 or whatever. And in fact, if you get to the point where only you're only doing two or three at a time, then you know, you're truly exhausting yourself. When I do a century set in rest, pause fashion, 
usually those last 20 reps, I'm getting two or three reps at a pop and it absolutely fucking sucks. So that's what you want to look for. Or you could just do a more traditional cluster set, meaning you don't have a necessarily a rep goal like you would on a rest pause. So that same Smith machine, you know, set that you're doing, you choose a weight that you might only get, you know, 15 reps with at the most and you'd be failing. So you load up the bar, you start pressing that weight. Let's say you get, you know, you're feeling good. You get to 16. You rack that bitch. You count to 10 or take 10 breaths. Unrack, get as many more as you can. Rack it. Count to 10 or 10 breaths. Unrack, get as many more as you can. When you can no longer unrack and get maybe two or three after that 10 breath pause, you're done. Uh, so that's about the best that you can possibly do and ensure that you're, you know, creating that, uh, that, that deep, uh, deficit into your muscularity and tearing down as much muscle tissue as you possible as possible to ensure not only compensation and recovery, but that overcompensation, which triggers new muscle growth and makes you bigger and stronger than you were before. So that's the way I would approach that. And, uh, I would be doing a lot of cluster sets and a lot of rest pause sets. And I program a lot of cluster sets and a lot of rest pause sets. If you're one of my clients, you're shaking your head and say, yeah, those fucking suck. Well, they're going to keep coming because I know those work and I know those work the best. If you're a guy that just does three sets of 12 on everything you do, well, you're never going to get to where you want to be. So, you know, quit now or be used to being a fat guy. Um, but if you want to get, take yourself to a level that, you know, and, and achieve that appearance that you have in your head, then you're going to have to take things to a level that you have never taken it before or never thought possible before. Okay. So hope that makes sense. Uh, let's see. I want to wrap this up. Um, what are your thoughts on casein protein? Okay, casein protein. Listen, I think there is some legitimate research. There, I think there is some legitimate um, anecdotal evidence to drinking some casein protein before bed. And the reason people, if you don't know, take casein protein is the belief is that casein is going to break down uh, into the body more slowly over a longer period of time than something like a whey isolate would. However, I think for 99.9% of us, that uh, is going to be negligible at best. And for me, I'm not going to go buy 16 different fucking proteins when I feel very confident that the steak that I had for dinner uh, and then the 50 grams away that I made down right before bed, I feel very confident are going to serve me well for that eight hours that I'm sleeping. And then I'm going to wake up first thing, you know, the next morning, drag my ass out of bed, take a shower, get to the gym. And every one of my first clients will tell you that I'm out there with a shaker bottle full of 50 grams of whey that I'm sipping on during my first session of the day. And this goes without fail seven days a week. So, hey, if you have an unlimited budget and you think, hey, this might be, you know, a little edge that might help me with some growth, give it a whirl. But once again, you know, I have to choose my battles because I do spend a lot of money on supplementation. And uh, I fully believe that through, you know, frequent eating of animal protein throughout the day, which I do, and taking in a good quality whey protein isolate source, especially right before bed, I think you're going to be just fine and not have to worry about, you know, you know, reaching out to some boutique style of protein and thinking that's going to be the be all end all. So maybe save your money and just stick with what has got you there. Um, but if you want to give it a shot, Hey, give it a shot. I'm not going to tell you, you know, one way or another, you be you and, uh, Hey, may, maybe you'll see a difference. I don't think you will. Uh, I've never in all of my years, you know, had some guy come flying across the gym, you know, and say, you know, the Holy grail of growth he has determined is taking in a casein shake right before bed. I just, I just don't see that. I think there are other things that you could do. Uh, that might serve you better than uh, changing up your proteins at, at night night time. Okay. Um, last question. Why can't I put on muscle? 
Well, you know, we've talked a lot about that in this episode, and we're going to talk about that in every episode because I do podcasts and videos about building muscle and losing body fat. That's what we do. In fact, I'm a little bit of an expert on the topic, but it amazes me how many people, even clients, can be given all the tools necessary to build a impressively muscular physique and whittle it down, yet still can't accomplish it even over very, very long periods of time. And there are some common causes and common concerns for that. But that question is a teaser because that's what the next video is going to be about. Why you're not putting on muscle. What are the reasons specifically? And there's going to be one major one and there's going to be a handful of minor ones as to why you're not getting that muscularity that you intended to put on when you started your program, when you started lifting, when you started dieting, I'm going to tell you why. And a lot of it is your own damn fault, but I'm going to break down why and how you can fix it. So there is a teaser to make you turn into the next video that I'm going to do all about why are you building muscle? And we're going to dissect that and walk you through that step by step. So and with that, episode 21 is in the books. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Spotify or your favorite podcast medium, thank you for sticking in there. I appreciate you being here. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, welcome to the Ketogenic Bodybuilding Podcast on YouTube. Episode 21 is in the books. I look forward to the next video and the next podcast, which will also be on iTunes. I'm going to remind you one more time, hit that subscribe button, hit that notification bell, leave a comment hit the like and let me know what you need out there, guys. So hope you liked it. Hope you enjoyed it. If you have any suggestions or recommendations, put them in the comments until next time, train hard, diet harder, go eat a big fucking steak, get lots of rest. And above all guys, have a great damn day. Peace.